Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi, everybody. Kinsey here with the To Die For Daily podcast. I am so excited to talk to Mike Perry today. Mike Porky Perry, as um, I'm sure you've heard him called on Mark Dolan's show on GB News. Can you tell me where Porky comes from? Because I am a I'm new to the Mike Perry fan club, so I don't have the backstory. Okay, well, I'm not sure there is a Mike Perry fan club, to be honest, but um, I uh, my my history really is that I was in newspapers for the first 20 years of my journalistic life in a place called Fleet Street, very famous street in London, where all the major newspapers um, congregated in the old days. And I worked there and then I moved into radio and on radio. I worked with a guy called Alan Brazil. Alan Brazil is to this day a very famous broadcaster in this country. Alan and I did the breakfast show on Talk Sport together for five years. And on one occasion, I mentioned that Alan put a bit of weight on since his um, days as a professional footballer, very successful footballer, played for Manchester United and he was an international for Scotland. Um, and, and, and Al's got a great wit about him and, and a great retort to anything you say. So when I said, you put a bit of timber on there, Al, you know, uh, since the days when you hung your boots up, he just retorted and came back immediately. Ho, 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 is that right? Says Porky Parry. Uh, he's a Scotsman. And, um, and it stuck ever since because we had an audience of about 1.2 million every morning. So from that minute on, I was branded Porky Parry rather unfairly. I, I agree. I'm going to start a petition. <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. Good idea. But you do. You have an amazing resume. Um, and it, I was going to mention Fleet Street. You just mentioned Fleet Street. Yeah. I believe it. you worked for, with The Express, with The Sun. You did do an, a really successful transition into primarily sports and broadcasting. But uh, what I wanted to specifically talk to you about was your experience with the royal family. I heard a very funny Andrew story from you. I don't know if we'll have time to get into that. Andrew, you know, and his his girlfriend when he came back. Um, uh, from the from the war, but yeah. I really wanted to talk to you about Princess Diana. Did you ever have the chance to meet her? No, uh, oh. very few people ever met Princess Diana because of the security that surrounded her and the elite company in which she moved. I mean, look, plenty of us have stood outside theatres, you know, behind the red rope and and watched her go in and out and seen her on the red carpet and all that. But very very few people are. A colleague of mine called Stuart Higgins was the editor of The Sun and Stuart got a lot of royal exclusives. He, he had people inside the royal family. You know, he was very well connected and he only ever met her once in about oh, 15 years. And on that occasion, it was um, a formal reception. She, you know, she just said, oh, and here's Mr. Higgins, the man who knows so much about me. And then just passed by. And that was that was the fleeting sort of meeting between uh, Stuart, who was the editor of the biggest selling newspaper in this country, The Sun, and, and Diana. So I never got to meet her. My first experience, Kinsey, it's quite ironic, really. I was a reporter on the Daily Express first in Manchester, OK? Uh-huh. Because in this country, we have regional centres. In those days, we had the, the, the northwest base, which was Manchester, and we had Fleet Street in London. And on the day of Diana's um, wedding to Prince Charles... Uh, you'll know the year better than me. Was it 81? It was, yes. um, yeah, 81, yeah. The It was going to be such mass coverage for all the newspapers that they called all the teams in from Manchester down to London. So this is my first experience of working for a national newspaper because I was on the Express in Manchester. I, it was my first experience in London and I was posted on part of the route. 
um, you know, we had a reporter every hundred yards, really, because there was always the danger that, you know, something was going to happen. One of the horses would fall over or bolt or, you know, there might be some kind of terrorist incident or or, or a protest or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so the first time I saw Diana close up, I found a bloke who, <laughs> who was a, a businessman who made cardboard telescopes. So do you see what I mean? It's, yeah, it's yeah, a cardboard yeah. telescope. You, you look in it down at the bottom and there's two mirrors, which means that two feet up, you can see over the heads of the crowds. Oh, genius. So I, yeah, yeah. So I'm not a tall chap. I'm about five foot nine and there's loads of people in front of me. So I bought this telescope and the first image I ever got of Diana in, in a professional sense was seeing the golden carriage flash by with Diana sitting in the back through my cardboard periscope <laughs> in 81. And of course, the irony of all that, um, in, in, the, in the middle of my career, when I was based in New York for the Daily Express, we were often sent down to the Caribbean to chase, um, you know, uh, showbiz stars and members of the royal family. And the next time I got anywhere close was on a boat chasing Diana's yacht around the British Virgin Islands. Oh, wow. Did you get close? No, because not only was the yacht bigger and much more powerful than the little boats we were hiring, but yeah. there were all sorts of security right. boats around. Wherever D Diana went, the people who ran the country she was in felt so enamoured to have Diana there that they would turn out the whole army and the yeah. Navy and the Air Force to make sure that nobody got near her and she was very, very well protected. She was the most famous woman in the world. Right. And I, re I, I remember talking to somebody in Hollywood about Elizabeth Taylor and they said, Elizabeth Taylor is the most famous woman in the world. That makes her the most powerful woman in the world. And so why it was, you know, while it wasn't an obvious power drive with Diana, she just happened to be very popular without a shadow of a doubt. She, her influence was enormous in anything she did and wherever she went. Do you think that because Prince Harry saw that activity around his mother, do you think that that might be why he expects similar, you know, security? And I'm, I didn't plan to ask you this question, but I had just no, never sure. heard that before. That she, that the that the cities would were so excited to have her that yeah. that they wanted to do that. That's right. Look, I think Harry has had to deal with mental turmoil all his life. You know, from the moment um, we can all look back and cringe at those pictures of poor Harry um, walking, following his mother's coffin. What kind of effect could that have on a little boy as he was then? And, and I'm sure that mental turmoil has has tormented him all his life. But remember, William was there as well. Yeah. And William seems to have handled it better in terms of growing up into an adult man with responsibilities and having to put the past behind him and live in the present and, and look to the future, which Harry has struggled to do. But no, I don't. I, I have to say, I think Harry sometimes uses the security card really as a, um, a manipulative sort of, you know, uh, pawn on the chessboard in the sense that, you know, I suggest that I need security. I don't think he really does. But if anything ever went wrong, the people who he's addressing would say, oh, maybe he was right. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. I think it's a little bit of emotional blackmail there because um, of what happened to his mother, because there's still a lot of people on this earth who believe that um, Diana, Princess of Wales, was hounded to her death by the paparazzi. And it was the pressure of her fame that 
led to her, you know, ultimate uh, demise. I don't hold that opinion myself, but it's something that people tend to turn to and often use when the situation seems right for it. So if I asked you what killed Princess Diana, would you say a drunk driver and, a, you know, a lack of a seatbelt? What would you say? Without a shadow of a doubt. Without a shadow of a doubt. If she'd ha have had royal protection, then this would not have happened because we know how to organise things. You know, we have a, our police um, unit is Scotland Yard and we obviously have a diplomatic squad and a royal protection squad. So they're, they're trained, you know, brilliantly in how to subtly be around and protect because as you know we don't have armed police in this uh, country so yeah. we have to do it in other ways i.e making sure that you know she's not exposed to danger making sure that people are you know uh, safely escorted into cars and out of cars and all that kind of stuff you know um no i, I i'm sorry the problem was that dodie fired sadly died in that crash his father um mr fired was a power broker and I think he saw the fact that his son was having a relationship with Diana, not only as something which, you know, he could feel good about because he, he loved his son dearly. But without a shadow of a doubt, Mr. Fyde, who's one of the world's most successful businessmen, saw it as a sort of a notch on the business post, you know, Clout. to have the ear, have the ear of Diana, Princess of Wales. And therefore, I think he got very overexcited about it. And on the night, as you know, Kinsey, that Diana... Uh, died she there were several ways she could have come out of the hotel in paris she came out of a back entrance whipped into a car and it's obvious to me no proper preparations had been made for the route that car was going to take which other protective cars with security people in them were going to be with her in a convoy didn't seem to be a convoy seemed to be a driver who we know had been in the bar that night leapt into the driving seat shot off and you know, as you know uh, very well, ever since there have been reports in which he said, you'll never catch me. Um, so the whole, you know, the whole ambience of that night was not about a dignified um, journey from one location across Paris to another. It was almost like a cat and mouse race. I, I even think I remember Trevor Reese Jones saying that they, you know, changed the, the path yes. they were going to take, like once they got in the car or something, which yes. is just completely... Like you said, Ken Wharf would have never allowed that to no, happen. No, um, no, 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 no. You're, you're absolutely right there. Sorry, just, just to, well, no, you're absolutely right. If they had a route that they planned out, it wouldn't have been through a tunnel because we all know what can happen in tunnels. Crashes happen, but fires can happen in tunnels. It's a security risk to anybody who goes into a tunnel. Oh, wow. Um, I do. I want to go back to that night, but I wanted sure. to ask just based on uh, something you just said. Do yeah. you believe that Martin Bashir's interview, you talked about if she would have had palace protection. Do you believe yeah. that Martin Bashir's interview, the way he went about doing it, the manipulative way he went about doing it, you know, and, and making her fearful of palace security. Do you think that that did have just you know, any part in her death and her demise? I'm sure it was a huge factor. Wow. Now, you've got to remember, I'm a working journalist myself, so yeah. are you. Right at the start, I admired Martin Bashir for getting this world-beating interview with the most famous woman in the world who had a story to tell. That story being, you know, the crumbling and, and um, end of the royal marriage to Prince Charles. And so at the start, I was full of admiration. And then even when 
even when questions started being asked, I've been in my business, your business, long enough to know there's an awful lot of jealousy in our yeah. industry. Yeah. And people started chipping away and they tried to find reasons why Martin Bashir, you know, was not as quite straightforward as he said he was. And he hadn't acted quite as um, elegantly as uh, he pretended to. And then, of course, over the years, many, many years, and it shouldn't have taken many, many years. The BBC should have found out about all this much, much sooner. Right. It became absolutely clear that Mr. Bashir had been incredibly deceitful, Oof. dishonest, threatening. Unethical. And, uh, uh, unethical and, question mark, allegedly illegal. Right. Now, if it takes all that to secure an interview, that's where my cutoff point comes. I wouldn't get involved. I do a lot of things to get an interview, and I have done a lot of things to get interviews with people over the years. You know, in the end, uh, Mr. Bashir has got an awful lot to answer for. And to answer your question directly, by the time Diana came out of that interview, that historic TV interview, her head must have been so muddled. Mm. First of all, she must have thought to herself, what have I done? Because yes. she'd actually gone through with it, and now it couldn't be brought back. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, you know, it had been recorded. It had it, the sound, the vision, everything was there. She must have come out after and thought, "What have I done?" But then, after that, I'm sure she questioned why she'd done it, how she did it, should she have done it. Immediately, it was announced that it had been done. Of course, she was being attacked on all sides, and that's when she maybe might have questioned some of the reasons why she did it. And of course, the reasons that Martin Bashir had put forward as to, to convince her to do it were mostly based on falsehoods, bank statements that had actually been created by an artistic creative director. Do you know what I mean? Not, yes. not, you know, not just waving bank statements around. Had, a, you know, had the names of people on it who Mr. Bashir said to her, these people have been betraying you and selling secrets and all that kind of stuff. So I think once all that started emerging, I think she will have a questioned herself, but B, then questioned whether or not she could ever trust anybody in this world again. Oh. And that's both in and out of the royal circle. And of course, on the night she sadly died, she was out of the royal circle. She felt, I think, more able to trust people outside that royal circle by that time than in it. But interestingly enough, after she yeah. does that interview, p there was a lot of praise for her by the public. The public, yeah. I don't know, they they felt yeah. like they knew her better, they accepted her more, they appreciated yeah. her more. But at the time of her death, she was going through a really negative period in the press and public perception. Now, is this all over Dodie, or are people just angry that she's dating? Why were why had people kind of shifted their perception of her right before she died? Yeah, sure. You're absolutely right. That interview, you know, one the famous statement, well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. You can imagine the sympathy of almost every woman in the world who had a, a husband who'd strayed, you know, and, and thinking, yeah, good for you, Diana, tell it like it is and all that kind of stuff. And of course, she looked so terribly elegant in that interview, didn't she? You know, and mm -hmm. she was dressed so beautifully and she, she you know, I don't know how many makeup artists she got, but they'd done it right that night. She looked <laughs> yeah. absolutely fabulous, you know. Um, and then there was a lot of sympathy. But I think what happened then was the, you know, the, the pro-Charles lobby, yeah. And there's a huge pro-Charles lobby in the establishment, as you can imagine, yeah. started getting to work. And then 
started undermining her. I'm not saying that Charles himself led that or he did it deliberately. I don't think he did. I think Charles is mostly a compassionate man. You know, I think he's a, a man who's going to make a good king of England and I don't believe he would resort to dirty tactics. But the stakes were so high, i.e. the future of the monarchy, that I think there were darker forces at work wow. which got down to the business of trashing a lot of the things that Diana had said. And by the time, uh, you know, uh, the last days and weeks of her life, I think you're right. I think Diana was in runaway mood. And that runaway mood was a bit like it was greeted by the rest of us. A bit like, do you remember when we first heard that Jackie Onassis had started dating the Greek shipping tycoon, whose name, I'm sorry, I can't remember now. Aristotle. Aristotle, Aristotle Onassis. Thank you very much indeed. I remember my mother, seriously, you know, throwing your hands up in horror and saying, what? How can Jackie Onassis, how can, you know, well, she wasn't Onassis then. How yeah. can Jackie Kennedy? Kennedy, how, America's yeah, yeah, sweetheart, Jackie, yeah. America's sweetheart, the president's widow, you know, still wearing, you know, a black veil for John F. Kennedy, who brutally cut down, you know, in, in an assassination. How can she possibly even think, you know, about um, associating with this man Onassis? And I think the world reacted a bit in the same way to Diana suddenly becoming, for want of a better word, in the eyes of the of the cameras that follow her all over the place, she'd become a sort of, you know, playgirl, you know, oh, a sort of, yeah. you know, on the Riviera, on the big yachts and all that kind of in stuff. In her leopard know? print bathing suits. Yes, Absolutely. I remember yeah. that. All right. So yeah. paint this picture for me. It's August 30th. I'm assuming yeah. you're in your living room. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, wh what's what's happening that night before you get this call that changes your life and changes the world? The world. Well, it was a Saturday mm -hmm. and I'd been in the office all day Saturday. I always insisted on working Saturdays because the Sunday newspapers come out on a Sunday, obviously. Okay. And so there's always plenty going on on a Saturday politically and diplomatically as they're pulling their stories together and all that kind of stuff. So I was the executive editor of the Press Association, uh, which is Britain's national news agency and certainly one of the most respected in the world and uh, a very large news agency with hundreds of um, correspondence, okay? So I'd got home and we have a program in the UK called Match of the Day. It's our most popular sports program. It shows you the highlights of all the day's uh, football matches, one after the other in a, uh, a one-hour program. And it was coming towards the end, so it must have been about half past 11. And my phone went and it was the office. And it was the guy who was looking after the night news desk, because it's a 24-hour day operation. And he said reports are coming in from Paris that uh, Diana has been involved in a, a car crash. Um, the first positive information is that Dodie fired appears to have been killed in this crash. Diana has a broken collarbone and lacerations. And I thought I knew instinctively, I knew instinctively there could be a lot more to this story. Yeah. I said, right, I'll be there. And so I called for a car car came picked me up half an hour later I was in the office and then we just had to get going and try and find out everything we could about what was happening in any way we could does every now, does every 60 seconds feel like an hour in that situation well I think every 10 seconds feels like an hour you know I because you you you're thinking you know you're heading towards something which is so absolutely finite what are we going to find at the end of it you know what I mean yeah. so anyway I called everybody in. You know, I called in the Royal Correspondent, the 
um, you know, the crime correspondent, uh, our man in Paris, obviously, all that kind of stuff, and realised the diplomatic correspondent, defence, uh, sorry, yeah, defence and diplomatic, wasn't around in London because he was on tour with Robin Cook, who was the foreign secretary of Her Majesty's UK government, okay? And Robin Cook was in Manila, in the Philippines, and my man, Charlie Miller, was with him. Um, so um, I don't know how I knew this, but I thought foreign secretary, Diana's been on foreign soil in Paris, uh, you know, sorry, in yes, in Paris, something's, you know, something's got to add up here as to the lines of communication. Now, it was in the very early days of mobile phones or cell yeah, phones, as yeah. they call them in America. And I didn't even know if we could contact him. So I told people to start ringing all the hotels he'd stayed in and, you know, the the um, the airlines where he was flying, try and find out where he was at this precise moment. And then I got a lucky break because Charlie got one of these messages and he called in. And and so I was there in London at the headquarters, at press association. Somebody picked up a phone, said, hang on, and shouted across, Mike, it's Charlie. Right, great. So I um, I spoke to him and I said, where are you? He said, we're in Manila in the Philippines because Mr. Cook was on tour and he was, you know, flying, hopping from country to country. Um, and he said, something very strange has just happened. I said, what's that? He said, we were in the plane at um, the airport in Manila and we left the apron and we were going towards the runway. And then all of a sudden there was a notification that we had to go back to the apron. So the plane turned round, okay? Oh. Yeah, and, and went back. And I said, why would they do that, Charlie? He said, I don't know, he said, but it must be something very important. Yes. He says, it's never happened to me before, you know, and I've been flying with, you know, diplomats for 10 years or something like that. And I said, something's going on here. I said, you must go away now and find out what it is. So obviously when the foreign secretary, who is the equivalent of the American uh, Secretary of State, is flying there's a you know there's a there's a group of them you know there's all his minders and there's all his uh, assistants and and you know political advisors and all that kind of stuff so charlie managed to get in amongst them to try and find out what was going on and by that time more information had come in from paris at our end and it was revealed for the first time that diana's injuries were a lot more serious than just a broken collarbone mm. you know she had been rushed to hospital and she was in an intensive care unit um, or the equivalent of, but it was still very, very sketchy information. Yeah. Anyway, then I managed to talk to our royal correspondent who himself had spent the past hour and a half, you know, digging away at people he knew both here and abroad and in America because there's, you know, a big influence of people who are on the inside information diplomatically worldwide in America and all that. And he was the first to say to me, I think this could be a lot more serious than anybody is actually admitting at the moment. So Charlie came back on the phone. I said, Charlie, go back and put it to Robin Cook, the foreign secretary. I said, get to him direct. You have to get through his people. You got to get to him. And you've got to say to him that we believe that Diana, Princess of Wales, may have died in this accident tonight in France. Please put that to him. Also, now, by the did... way, while you're doing this behind the scenes, yeah. like all of these major news out television news outlets are reporting that they saw her walk away yes. from the scene. So yes. you're you I mean, her her family's watching her sister's watching and you yeah. are really the only one that knows what's going on at this at this point in time. 
that's absolutely right. There was one report to say that she'd been seen wheeled into a hospital in a wheelchair uh, and, 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 and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, so anyway, so I told him to go and get it. Now, the other thing was, of course, that what we didn't know at the time was there were probably a dozen photographers in the tunnel taking pictures of the car crash oh and gosh. taking pictures of Diana in the back of the car. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. Because she was she was unconscious for obvious reasons. Yes. The impact of the crash had thrown her into the seat in front and it had crushed her chest. Mm. And we know now, in hindsight, you know, that had caused ruptures in blood vessels in her chest and she never spoke again. Um, you know, her, her chest and lungs were full of blood and all that kind of stuff. So the... The situation now is to try and get hold of somebody who may have been an eyewitness. But, of course, the difficulty there was you couldn't rush into the tunnel because the tunnel then had been, you know, closed off and, and, and only people were coming out and the police were questioning anybody who might have been an eyewitness. It was all moving so fast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it sounds like I'm talking about something that's happened in 30 or 40 minutes. By now, it was half past three in the morning. And I'd got back into the office at midnight and all yeah. this had been going on. But then I got the third phone call from Charlie. And he said, Mike, he said, I think she's dead. Mm -hmm. And I said, tell me exactly how it went. He said, I got to Robin Cook himself. And Charlie knew Robin Cook because he traveled with him a couple of times. And again, what I'd already found out and the reason I'd asked him to go and see Robin Cook was because in international diplomacy if the leading member of a family particularly the royal family is involved in anything you know like a serious injury on foreign soil the line of communication is from foreign secretary to foreign secretary it mm. is not from prime minister to prime minister or president to president or even monarch to monarch the lines of diplomacy say you have to first of all address the foreign secretary of the country that needs to know. So and you have that the guy. You have the guy. We have the guy. We we had the man now, i.e. Robin Cook, the, the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, was going to be the first man to receive the definitive news of what had happened to Diana Princess of Wales. And he'd received the news. Mm. And my man, Charlie, got alongside him, put it to him. And he's a government minister. And you can't go around denying things like that when they're put to you. And he didn't deny it. And in my view, having put together all the other pieces of the jigsaw, which I'd been gathering in the last three and a half hours from the Royal Correspondent, from people in France, in Paris, I thought he won't deny it. Uh, go back again, Charlie. Tell him we are going to put out a release which says that uh, Diana, Princess of Wales, has died. He didn't flinch at that. And at that point, I knew that what we were talking about was correct. Wow. So I put together the uh, it, it. Hang on, I've got it here. One minute. I've just oh, got wow. it here for, because I was looking it out before coming to talk to you. But at 4.41 on the 31st, I put out a release. Uh, I'm just trying to find the exact one. Here we go. Yeah, wait a minute. It's 3.41. This, this is, I've got a page here, 30 pages of notes of all the releases we put out that night from wow. the first one saying that she'd been injured until the minute I had to 
uh, teller. Uh, so, sorry, I had to release it to the world. So there's one at Porto. Right, here we go. There were over, we put out over 300, release, 300 releases that night. What? Here is the actual one. Right, this says, this is 31st of August, uh, 1997 at 4.41. Press Association Newsflash. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died, comma, according to British sources, comma, the Press Association has learned this morning. And that Wait, was... That's, that's all it said? Yeah, that's all that, it said to know, start that's, off with. That's actually more haunting than I yeah. ever imagined. Yeah, that and... was the... That, that announced it to the world first, okay? Um, and then, of course, the world went mad. Yes. The phone started ringing um, from all over the world. I heard that you had a hard time with getting an employee to actually go with, or like to push, like send, or I don't know how it worked at the time. Yeah. No, but... no, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I don't know anything about the techniques of the business. I'm a journalist, right? And my job was to introduce the energy and the drive into the organization and to get people moving, get them in the right place, get the information back, then hand it over to some technical guy who, first of all, typed it on a keyboard, then pressed a few buttons, and that released it into all the PA channels, okay? So the first guy asked to do this simply wouldn't. And, you know, he, I said, what's your problem? He said, we've got no confirmation. I said, no, we haven't got confirmation, but we are journalists and we have a yeah. duty and an obligation to release information to the world if we believe we have it. I'm not sitting on it. We're going to put it out. He said... I, I feel nervous about it in case it's not right. I said, I can understand your problem. I said, step aside. And I brought somebody else in and said, I need this to go out. I can't do it myself. I don't know technically how to do it, but this release has to go out now. Are you happy to undertake that task? And the guy said, yes, of course. And uh, it was a, a bloke, actually. And, um, and so he tapped it out and put it out. And we thought, we'll see what happens now. And, it and honestly, was... thank goodness you did, because I remember yeah. not not too long ago, her sister, a lady, Sarah, did an interview where she said she talked about how much it, you know, physically ached yeah. to watch all of those, you know, news channels talk about how she was still alive and yes. then to be crushed with the reality of her death. So at least yes. you had the courtesy to to say it as soon as as, yeah. as you knew that it, that was the reality because i think you I mean, it was a relief to people that were being led in the wrong direction well kinsey what you said there is absolutely right i felt to myself it would be against my own instincts not to share this information with the world it would be wrong of me if i have this information no to sit on it and not do anything but thirdly as a journalist my job is to gather information and then release it as quickly as possible. And it, it would be against all the natural instincts of our profession to say, look, I tell you what, let's just wait until somebody comes out and confirms it, right? Mm -hmm. I thought, no. And I discussed it with a couple of colleagues. I said, I'm, I, it wasn't my instincts. I checked all as many of the facts that were as available as I could. And I thought, Robin Cook won't deny it. And that tells me everything because that's the way government ministers work, you know. And it had such a dramatic effect. There was one um, news channel over here in the UK where one of the um, news directors actually ran onto the floor in front of the camera saying, PA says she's dead, you oh. know. Um, yeah. And, and as I say, the phone calls coming around the world. And then I was, I was really under the cosh 
because I was told I was irresponsible. You've got no confirmation of this. You know, how dare you be so reckless with the truth? You know, you're playing games with the life of Diana Prince of Wales. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I wouldn't have put it out if I wasn't sure. So I was fielding calls from all over the place. And at every turn, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I had to double down. I said, no, I'm absolutely certain. You can't be certain. You've had no confidence. I said, look, my job is to accumulate information, analyze it, assimilate it, and then respond to it. That's what I've done. Dinah, I'm afraid, has died. It's very sad, but she has. You can stop speculating on her health because Dinah is no more. I'm very sorry, but that's the case, you know. And um, what I didn't do, which is quite interesting, is I, although I'm the executive, I was the executive editor of the Press Association, I, of course, had a boss. And I knew that if I'd have rung him to seek permission to put that release out, he would have said no. And he would have said no because he was the overall head of the organisation and the Press Association has a magnificent reputation born yeah. out of 150 years of never getting anything wrong, right? And he would have been putting that at risk because he wasn't in the white-hot heat of the newsroom that I was in. Yes. He wasn't able to draw in the strands from every direction, every area from all over the world he would have just been woken up in bed and told, I'm putting out a release, Diana, Prince of Wales is dead. He would have said, oh, have the palace announced this? And I said, no, but I know I've been working on it for the last three and a half hours. He would have stopped me putting it out. So I didn't tell him and I put it out. Did you get in and, trouble from your boss or did he, was he, well, I don't know. Well, I'd, I'd have been in terrible trouble had I got it wrong for obvious right. reasons. And it would have been the end of my journalistic career, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I knew he would have stopped me and then we'd have lost the responsibility we had to inform the world that Diana had sadly died in this um, tunnel uh, car crash in Paris. So I then had a very long wait of 17 minutes until a guy called Mr. Chavonnement, who was the French Foreign Secretary, the equivalent to Robin Cook, came out of the Elysee Palace in the middle of Paris and stood in front of a microphone and made the formal announcement to, uh, uh, to tell the world that sadly Diana, Princess of Wales, had died in a hospital in Paris that, that night following a very severe car crash um, in that tunnel in the middle of Paris. Well, it was the longest 17 minutes of my life, as you I can bet. probably, uh, you know, um, expect. I, I felt both an enormous sense of relief that I got it right, but a terrible sense of loss yes. that I'd been the person to have to tell the world that Diana, Princess of Wales, at such a young age, had been killed. Yeah, I and I'm like, a tremendous I was... sense of loss. I'm not kidding you. I was a child when that happened. And yeah. the way that that affected me as a child, you know, so yeah. it is, a, it is, it's, it's got to be so strange to think about. I mean, I was, I was living in Plano, Texas. And, you know, yes. I'm a little girl in Texas, you yes. know, that's reacting to something that you, um, yeah. you revealed. Um, yeah. I will. I won't keep you very much longer because you've been so gracious with your time. But I did think it was funny. I've been on an Elvis kick because I just saw the new movie, yeah. and I wanted to see if there were any connections between Elvis and Diana. And I found a paper written in 2006 by a Diana author and um, a professor at a university here, who in 20 or uh, 2006 said that there's no way Diana's death 
will continue to be relevant the way that Elvis's is. Um, yeah. What what's your take on that? Her legacy, well, who she is today. Um, I'll bring another name into the mix with that, John Lennon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the death of John Lennon affected me terribly badly. I've been mm -hmm. a Beatles fan all of my life, ever since I was a little kid. We grew up with the Beatles in this country. Yeah. I was brought up in Chester, which is a little town about 15 miles from Liverpool, where the Beatles, you know, originated from the Mersey Beat sound and all that kind of stuff. And I love Beatles music all my life. And I love John Lennon. I, uh, I was woken at 6 a.m in the morning when I was working in London for a um, regional newspaper, a provincial newspaper, to be told John Lennon had been shot. And that had a very profound effect on me and still does have. It's still, I think, the most shocking event of my life. And wow, really? Uh, Diana, Di Diana was very shocking, obviously dying, but I didn't have any personal feelings about Diana other than one of admiration and, and sorrow. Whereas with John Lennon, John Lennon was imbued in my soul. Do you see what I mean? Right. So yes. what I'm saying is, I think it's a very personal thing. Okay. I mean, yeah. Elvis Elvis was the original American icon. Yeah. You know, when you think of America over the last couple of centuries, you think of Frank Sinatra, Coca-Cola, the New York Mets. But on top of it all, in my view, is Elvis. Yes. You know, Elvis was America, the land of the free and the home of the brave and all that kind of stuff, you know. And so I can understand why people's lives were very, you know, changed by, by the death of Elvis in the same way that our lives were changed by the death of Diana it, for different reasons. One, in Diana's case, out of grief and sorrow for the manner in which she died. Mm. But I think in Elvis's case and John Lennon's case, for the talent that was taken away from us, Ripped. which we'd never Absolutely. be able to observe in work again. Absolutely. Such a good point. Uh, mm. Do you have any other Diana stories that you could share before well, I leave I, I, Well, Well, I, I just want to tell you what happened in the aftermath of um, of that dreadful night. Please do. After 4.41, um, that's when I put the release out. And then 17 minutes later, 4.58, it was confirmed. So it was about 5 a.m. The newspaper industry in this country uh, has been very efficient for years printers were called back into the works of the national newspapers in this country at 5 a.m. Wow. And, and, and the press started rolling again. And that's unprecedented. The Usually the latest that the papers would ever run a story, you know, even if it was a very, very big story, you know, Prime Minister quits or something like that, would be about 2.30 a.m. in the morning. So it was unprecedented for people to be called back into the newspaper offices and you have to start up the presses again it's like starting up an oil tanker you know what i mean the ink's got to be put in the paper's got to be loaded on the reels and all that and the paper started running like it was a new day right. and uh, and we were getting you know new newspapers at midday on sunday because it was a, a sunday and then the other thing i remember is that friend of mine i told you about Stuart higgins who was the editor of the sun as soon as all the fleet street editors uh, realized what had happened from my announcement they all got up and went straight into work at 5 a.m on sunday morning and stayed there until the paper had been finished that night and Stuart, in particular the sun was the biggest selling newspaper in this country probably that day of about 56 pages which would have been divided into the news stories at the front all the features in the middle and then loads of sport at the back because it was a saturday for a sunday for a monday Stuart used every single one of the 56 pages on information on Diana, reports on Diana, Diana's life, 
He, he didn't put anything else in the paper at all. Wow. Not, you know, not, no, no sport, no politics, no features. It was just Diana. That's the sort of effect that Diana's death had on us in this country. Everything else was wiped out of your memory, wiped out of your imagination, wiped out of your life that day. It was simply Diana. Just one last thing, Kinsey. I remember the, the press association offices I was telling you about uh, are based very near um, Westminster, which is near Buckingham Palace. Yeah. And after about day three, right, uh, I thought to myself, I think I'll go around to Buckingham Palace and with one of the photographers. I mean, we had photographers there all the time, but I wanted to go and see for myself what the sort of um, what, what the situation was, how the country was reacting to it. And so I was able to walk there. It was about a quarter of a mile away. And when I got about three blocks away, about three streets away, as we'd say in London, I started smelling flowers. Oh. And I thought, I've walked down this street many times. I didn't know there was cherry blossom here or something like that, you know. And then as I turned the corner into the road that led me up to Buckingham Palace, there was a carpet of flowers, which I would say was about four or 500 yards long coming back from the palace walls and the palace railings. It, wow. it was phenomenal. People were only able by about day three or four to get within half a mile of the palace to lay their flowers because the next half mile up the Mall, which is the road that approaches Buckingham Palace, was simply a carpet of flowers. It was astonishing. Oh, it just shows you how much people loved and adored her. Absolutely, it did. And Dinah was imbued in me a bit as a great British institution. Yeah. You know, I'm very proud to be English and British. And I thought that, you know, if we've got Diana and the whole world loves her, then that's she's been produced by British society. You know, yes. we have a unique royal family and, 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 and royal tradition. And she grew into that and then became the, the best of it and the biggest of it. So I was very proud about that. And yes, I did miss her because I loved the adoration she got from all around the world. I loved the fact that as far as I was concerned, it was the best tool we had in what you might call soft politics. You know what I mean? I think it's still true that if if you put a picture of Diana on the front of a magazine, it will definitely affect its sales upwards. And she's, you know, God rest her soul, been dead now for 25 years. So in the days when she was actually alive, when there were new pictures of her, you know, every week and every day and a new dress and a new location and, you know, picking up a new little baby or something like that. I mean, she was literally manna from heaven for um, for the newspaper industry, but more particularly the glossy magazine industry. You know, get an exclusive with Diana, get Diana on the front, whoosh, you know, you'd had a great week. Mike Perry, I just knew I would have such a fun time talking to you. You did not disappoint. If I could just well, keep you in my pocket, I all the time I would because you're a good conversation. You're not you're fun yeah. to talk to. Um, yeah. And I hope I see you again on GB News soon because that's always a, a, a joy. And Kinsey, thank you very much indeed for having given me the opportunity to use your platform to tell the Diana story because honestly, I don't want the Diana story to die. So I'll keep telling it. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. A transcript of this chat is available at todiefordaily.com. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.